I think that lawyers do need to, to get over that aversion to self-promotion. If you think about practice building and business development, a lot of it is tooting your own horn or explaining to clients why they might want to hire you. And look, it doesn't have to be arrogant. It doesn't have to be obnoxious, but you need to demonstrate to people the value that you're adding. And if you won't do that, then it's not necessarily the case that somebody will do that for you. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm super excited to welcome David Latt. David's a writer, journalist, and commentator on the law and its practice. He recently launched a newsletter called Original Jurisdiction. That's available at davidlatt.substack.com. Before starting Original Jurisdiction, David was a legal recruiter, and before that, he founded the well-known legal media blog, Above the Law, where he served as managing editor until 2017. Prior to his time at Above the Law, David worked as an associate at Wachtell in New York City, an assistant United States attorney, and as a law clerk to Judge Scanlon on the Ninth Circuit. David got his start in writing about the law on his blog, Underneath Their Robes, which he created in 2004, where he wrote anonymously about the federal judiciary. His novel, Supreme Ambitions, was published in 2014, and David's been nominated for and won numerous awards, including just this past year being a finalist for American Lawyers Attorney of the Year and winning the Dan Bradley Award from the National LGBT Bar Association. He's a graduate of Harvard Go Crimson and Yale Law School Go Bulldogs. Welcome to the podcast, David. Hey, thanks, John. Good to be here. I'd love to just start in the beginning of your career as a writer on the internet about law. So before you had all that above the law fame, you were writing underneath their robes anonymously. Tell me a little bit about how that started, what got you interested in writing in that medium? Yeah, so this was back in 2004, as you mentioned, and I was at the time working as an assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey. I was mainly doing appellate work, so I was writing appellate briefs. And I enjoyed the work, but I didn't feel completely fulfilled. There was some itch I was trying to scratch. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I had the, I, the desire to do some writing that was not purely legal, that wasn't just uh, littered with blue book citations. <laughs> and this was 2004. This was the early days of blogging. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I try this thing that everyone else is doing, starting a blog? And, you know, they always say, write what you know. So I knew a fair amount about the federal judiciary, having (laughs) clerked and having appeared before judges. And so I thought, well, why don't I start a blog about that? But I didn't want to write about their jurisprudence. I did enough of uh, writing about cases by day. I wanted to write about personal things, humorous things, admittedly gossipy things. So I came up with the idea for this blog called Underneath Their Robes, News, Gossip, and Colorful Commentary about the Federal Judiciary. And I would sometimes be a little irreverent. The blog was mainly positive, sort of like a fan letter to the federal judiciary. But every now and then I would get mildly snarky. So I thought, well, I should probably not do this under my own name, considering that I'm appearing before these judges by day. So I adopted a pseudonym. I called myself uh, Article 3 Groupie after Article 3 (laughs) of the Constitution, uh, which sets up the federal judiciary. And a groupie, as in like a fangirl who follows around rock stars, except these were traditional rock stars. Love that. And yeah, and when I say fangirl, I mean that too, because I was pretending to be a woman while I was doing this. Originally, I did it just to sort of cover my tracks, but as time went on, I really developed sort of a backstory for the character as well. So 
that's really how I got started in terms of online writing about the law. Yeah. And what sort of freedom did writing anonymously give you? And also sort of what made you ultimately decide, I don't want to write anonymously anymore. I want to write under my own name, but still write about the judiciary as opposed to about the doctrine. Yeah. So it's interesting. Writing under a pseudonym was very liberating. I have to admit, I do have a sort of people-pleasing component to my personality. Uh, Many lawyers do. (laughs) Exactly. And I probably need a thicker skin in terms of just a willingness to be disliked or hated. And sometimes when you say things, uh, very candid things, very honest things, which I try to do there, you're worried about how people will receive them. But I didn't have to worry about that because I was writing under this pseudonym. Perhaps it was in the back of my mind that eventually I would reveal myself or I would be outed and then everyone would know. But at the time, I never really had to think about whether this was going to offend someone or make somebody angry uh, because I was writing under this pseudonym. So it was very liberating. Uh, Hmm. It's increasingly hard to do in this digital age where everything is tracked and monitored. And I tell anyone who's thinking of starting anything anonymous, you should do so with the thought that you can and likely will be eventually revealed. So don't do anything such that if you were revealed, it would be catastrophic to your life or career, because I think it's very hard to do this nowadays. And that kind of gets to how I revealed myself. It was hard to do it back then, even. And I was technologically ignorant. Uh, I didn't know about IP addresses, you know, this four-digit identifier that attaches to your computing session. And so I was emailing as Article 3 Groupie and as David Latt, same computer at the same time. And I didn't realize that anyone who knew more about computers than I did, which was everyone, <laughs> opened up the headers on these emails and look at the metadata and see that it was very likely that Article 3 Groupie and David Latt were one and the same. Mm. So I had been giving away these sort of digital breadcrumbs to my identity. And eventually, a year and a half in, uh, a lot of people, I think, had figured out who I was. And so it was at that point that I decided to reveal myself. And mm-hmm. I connected with Jeffrey Tubin of The New Yorker, then of The New Yorker. He's, of course, had his own mishaps lately. But at the time, uh, he was the legal affairs writer for The New Yorker. And we had struck up a, a, a friendship because I had corresponded with him from the blog account, and we'd become friendly. And then eventually, we met up in person. We had lunch at the Condé Nast cafeteria. He gave me advice about transitioning from practicing law to writing about it. And at the end of that lunch, he said, well, if you ever want to reveal yourself, let me know. At the time, I said, thanks, but no thanks. But uh, a year and a half into the project, I was getting emails from people in the blog account who had clearly figured out who I was, who would say Mm. things like, oh, hey, I'm coming to Newark. Do you want to grab coffee? I was working in Newark, New Jersey at the time. Oh, hey, how come you don't write more about your old boss, Judge O'Scanlan? Things like that. And so I thought, Mm. well, if I'm going to go out, I would rather go out in a blaze of glory in the pages of the New Yorker (laughs) with a friendly journalist, as opposed to being outed by some random other blogger with screenshots on their own blog. So that's why I decided to give that interview in, I guess it was November of 2005. Got it. And you had been trained as a writer, right? We all as lawyers are trained as writers of a particular sort. And then you had clerkships and worked at law firms where you continued to learn how to write like a lawyer. What were some of the differences between sort of your day job writing and your night job writing on this totally different topic, but for a similar audience, just looking for different content? So certainly I had to focus on certain things more in terms of the blogging. For example, underneath their robes did try to be funny on occasion. And so I would 
try to integrate humor in there. And also I could inject more of my own personality, which mm -hmm. lawyers are really not supposed to do. It's supposed to be about the clients and about the issues. So I think those were the differences, but there were a lot of similarities. I think at the end of the day, as a writer, you want to be understood. And so whenever I was writing a brief or a blog post, I tried to put myself in the shoes of someone who was not me and ask myself, would this person understand the point that I'm trying to get across? Yeah. And the other thing I would say that's similar is, and I think legal training can help, is just an attention to precision with respect to language. Lawyers are really trained to mean exactly what we say and to be very careful and to qualify things when necessary and not to overstate and all of that. And I've tried to bring that to my work as a blogger and a journalist. So in some ways, people say, oh, maybe you develop bad habits as a lawyer in terms of writing, but I don't think so, actually. I think you develop the habit of seeing things from the perspective of the reader. And did you sort of have any long-term aspirations that this might ultimately become your full-time job and you'd become sort of a media person writing about <laughs> law as opposed to a lawyer uh, who was trying to shy away from the media? Yeah, I didn't really, I think. Certainly when I started practicing law, I thought I would just be a practicing lawyer. And maybe if I was lucky enough, maybe someday become a judge. But I never really thought that I would move to this side of things. But when I gave the interview to The New Yorker, maybe it was already in my head because mm -hmm. one of the reasons I gave that interview was underneath the robes that attracted a following. It was read by judges, even justices at the Supreme Court. But I wasn't able to realize any benefit from that because I was under this pseudonym. So on the mm -hmm. one hand, the pseudonym was liberating to me as a writer, but on the other hand, I couldn't reap any of the benefits. And so once I revealed myself, uh, then I could live more freely and I could meet up with people who were fans of the blog and I could write for other publications mm -hmm. uh, using the blog as a calling card. And so there were some advantages to outing myself. Got it. And so then you decide you're going to go start above the law. What's the story there? Yeah. So I had one brief stop in between underneath their robes and above the law. My first job after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office was working for a politics blog uh, by the name of Wong Kett. Mm -hmm. I moved down to D.C. and I uh, did that for about half a year. It was a good sort of trial run to see how much I liked blogging. And I discovered I did enjoy the blogging and the online writing, but I really missed writing about the law. That was really my area of expertise. And so mm. in the summer of 2006, I came up with the idea for Above the Law and connected with a company uh, now called Breaking Media, which was publishing different websites focused on different industries. They already had a finance site up uh, by the name of Dealbreaker, and I pitched them on my idea for Above the Law, and they liked the idea. And so I launched it for them in the summer of 06. What I love about that story is you see the two layers happen over the course of those few years. Layer one is learning that you like writing on the internet. You like blogging. And the other is you're layering on that you have this sort of unique expertise. You've been trained at some of the finest legal institutions. You've worked for legal people. You've kind of found that Venn diagram that makes you, David Latt, different maybe than 99.9% .9 of the world. And maybe that's what lawyers are constantly trying to do is find what our Venn diagram looks like. But yep. we don't know when we leave law school what it's going to look like. Did you have some of that experience of being like, oh, man, I like doing this and I have this background and if I put them together, maybe I can build a career out of it. I think it's a great way of putting it, Joan. I think that we're all trying to find those overlapping circles. 
And it can be tough. For me, I think my career was sort of trial and error. I loved clerking, but with the exception of that, you know, law firm, AUSA, mm-hmm. blogger, my career satisfaction increased over the course of those three jobs. It was a matter <laughs> of trying something, discovering, well, you know what, maybe this isn't perfectly my thing, and let me try something else. And that's kind of how careers are. You, you try something, you see how it goes, you get what you can out of the experience, whether it's the resume line or paying off your loans or uh, connections, uh, and then maybe you move on to another opportunity. So for me, it was very much this iterative process of trying to figure out what I actually wanted to do. And once I found what I wanted to do, I did it for a long time, have been doing it for a long time. I mean, really, what I'm doing today is what I was doing back in 2004 part-time at Underneath the Robes or 2006 mm-hmm. full-time at Above the Law. I've really come back to it. And so, you know, sometimes when you really enjoy something, it just has a way of pulling you back. Right. You enjoy it. And on top of that, you also found something that you were good at, or at least the audiences said that you were good at it. And I guess that's my other question about Above the Law. How did you turn Above the Law from what was a blog in David Latt's head to one of the biggest sort of commentators on our practice? How did that happen? Well, I should say that a lot of credit belongs to the other writers who joined the team. So mm-hmm. I started in 2006. In 2008, Elliot Mistal joined. In 2010, Stacey Zareski joined. Then Joe Patrice and Catherine Rubino. And pretty much every two years, the site has added a new full-time writer. Mm-hmm. And in addition, Above the Law has dozens of outside columnists who also bring very valuable perspective because they're not full-time writers. They're generally practicing law or legal academics or other folks, legal technologists, mm-hmm. what have you. But they have other areas of expertise that they they bring to the table. It's really a collective enterprise. Uh, In terms of what I think helped Above the Law grow, and this is what I say to everyone who asks for my advice about blogging or online writing, I think it was offering content that you couldn't find elsewhere. There's such an abundance of content nowadays, and if you're offering someone something that they can find elsewhere, it's hard to get people to pay attention to you when there's so much else out there. And so for Above the Law, I think we were able to find this niche that just wasn't being covered, whether it was covering associate compensation trends in greater detail, whether it was covering sort of the backstory at law firms in greater detail, or controversies or scandals at law schools. And look, we would also cover big Supreme Court rulings and all of that. But I think there was a segment of legal news that wasn't being entirely served by the existing outlets, and we were able to step into that vacuum. And any sort of favorite stories or uh, favorite sort of pieces of content that you put out during your, you know, more than a decade there or any stories that maybe didn't work out as well as you had hoped? Yeah, I can definitely name a few. I think one thing that I'm certainly proud of is our coverage of the downfall of Dewey and LaBeouf, a large law firm that collapsed. This was during a time when people who worked there were not receiving honest information from their leadership about the state of the firm. And we were a clearinghouse for information and tips we were getting about it. And a lot of people told us we're really glad that you existed because we were getting more information about the situation from you than we were from the firm leaders. And Mm. so that was a really substantive story with a lot of implications for the profession and for all the hundreds of people who worked there. And I think we covered that very well. Similarly, the financial crisis, all of the layoffs and salary freezes and salary cuts and deferrals of associates. I think we were a very valuable resource during that 
time as well. So those are, I think, some of the, the sort of, you know, big stories that we really were able to own. One fun story, but it does have a lesson too, is I covered a story about a, a partner um, in management who was talking very loudly on the Estella about layoffs that his firm was about to conduct. And hmm. he was being very indiscreet. And another reader of ours basically heard all of this from one seat away and emailed us saying, wow, can you believe this person's talking this openly and loudly about these law firm layoffs? And, you know, I, I wanted to confirm this. So I used a pseudonym and I reached out to the partner and said, oh, hey, you know, will you sell at 2 p.m. from D.C. to New York? And he said, yes. Did I forget something? And my basic response was, well, your discretion, um, <laughs> because I then had confirmed the information from the tipster that he was, in fact, on this train. Uh, and then we wrote about these layoffs and the law firm ended up apologizing for, I think, as they put it, the unfortunate way in which these reductions became public. But the serious lesson there is, look, lawyers have to keep confidences, whether it's about what's going on at their firm or whether it's about their clients. And um, this lawyer was not particularly good at that. So in an age where looking somebody up is just a couple of taps on your smartphone away, it's more important than ever to be very careful. First of all, I think that story is incredibly important and one I would tell my students and anybody <laughs> listening, it's a good reminder and you need a reminder that the world is listening. It always was, but it's really listening now. The other thing I think that's really interesting is, you know, some people I think see above the law as kind of watching the horse race a little bit of law, but you were providing information that helped people that they didn't have otherwise, right? More information in terms of sort of cross-firm salaries, right, helped people negotiate better salaries. And so, you know, more news is probably better news at the end of the day. And it sounds like that was sort of one of your driving principles behind how you covered things at, at ATL. No, absolutely. I think that's really a good way of putting it. And law firms often in the war for talent play follow the leader. If they see somebody else doing something that is appealing, they often copy it. And so by sharing what other law firms are doing, sometimes we help these trends spread. So one thing that we did was we started covering parental leave at different law firms. And at the time that we started covering it, the industry standard was maybe 12 weeks. But once one firm raised and then other firms followed, everybody wanted to get on the bandwagon. And now the industry standard is more like 20 weeks. So this type of information can really affect people's lives. Now, look, these are admittedly very privileged people. These are graduates generally of top law schools and they work at top firms. I'm not saying that, you know, we're feeding the hungry, but I think we are serving the audience that we happen to be writing for. I say we, even though I, I you know, I've left above the law, but sure. uh, I still consider, you know, having been there for so long, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm speaking about what we were involved in as an enterprise. Sure. And I guess that brings me to my next question, which is sort of one of the biggest challenges for lawyers, especially those of us who want to create on the internet, whether that's having a Twitter profile or starting a blog or starting a podcast, or even just writing something in a sort of publication, is this tension of lawyers feeling like we're not supposed to be putting our names on things out there and we're not supposed to be creating and self-promotion sometimes just feels either like scammy on the one hand or like self-indulgent on the other. And I guess, what are your thoughts on sort of lawyers building content and building audiences in the 21st century? Yeah, I think that lawyers do need to, to get over that, basically, that aversion to self-promotion. If you think about practice building and business development, a lot of it is tooting your own horn or explaining to clients why they might want to hire you. And look, it doesn't have to be arrogant. It doesn't have to be obnoxious, but you need to demonstrate to people the value that you're adding. And 
If you won't do that, then it's not necessarily the case that somebody will do that for you. A lot of times in discussions about diversity and equity and inclusion, people observe that sometimes marginalized groups aren't as good at that as certain other groups. And you do need to just kind of get over that because other people are happy to take credit for what you've done if you don't take credit for yourself. But look, it doesn't have to be done in a, in a gross way. A lot of times, for example, for Above the Law and also my current publication, Original Jurisdiction, you can show you're adding value just by saying, hey, look at what we just reported. There's something in it for the reader. It's not just look at how awesome I am. It's look at this new information hmm. about whatever the topic might be, Supreme Court law clerk hiring, Bristow Fellows, a law firm merger, lateral moves, whatever it is, you're offering value. And the reader says, wow, I like that value. I'm going to bookmark this site or I'm going to subscribe to this newsletter. And the same thing with lawyers and clients. You're, you can write a client memo about some area that you're an expert in. And somebody who comes across this problem as a lawyer might say, wow, this person seems to be an expert on the FCPA. Let me reach out to them and see if maybe they can help me with this matter. And look, I don't mean to exaggerate it and say that suddenly you write one blog post or one article and you're going to get a million clients. It's no, neat. No. You, know, you just never know where something is going to come from. And so you kind of have to try a lot of things. Yeah, that's interesting too. When you think about it, you know, it's almost like putting content out in the world, whether again, it's in the form of a tweet or an Instagram post or a client alert, LinkedIn post. There are lots of ways to do it. You're actually not doing anything for yourself, even though that's what it feels like. You're actually giving a gift to your audience. And if they don't want the gift, they're not going to take it and they're not going to hold it against you. But if they do, it helps them and it helps you. Yep, exactly. It's a win-win. So I tell people, don't be shy about uh, sharing your uh, talents and your information with the world. Yeah. And I'm trying to get my students to do that too. And I think there's a hesitancy there as well. I mean, you know, there, you have to be careful, right? Whatever yeah. you put your name on is going to be on your name forever, basically. And yeah. it's easily searchable thanks to the Google overlords. But at the same time, you can put your thing, name on things that'll help you 10 years down the road. You just don't know how it's going to help you, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing is, if there is lots of content about you out there, in some ways it could be good because if you do have a mishap or a controversy or a scandal, at least there'll be lots of other stuff competing with it. It's totally. very hard European style right to be forgotten. It's very hard to get negative stuff about you off the internet, but at least you can drown it out with lots of positives. So there are advantages, but you're right. You have to be careful. You have to use good judgment. Sometimes lawyers are scared about writing for that reason, but I say, look, it's really just a matter of judgment, which is what you exercise on behalf of your clients every day. So if you have the good sense to guides your client through a crisis, you should have the good sense to provide information about a certain issue with creating a conflict of interest or causing a controversy or embarrassing yourself or your firm. It's really just an extension of what you do as a lawyer. Any suggestions to someone who wants to start building an audience, for lack of a better term, besides put out good content? Yeah, you know, you do, I think, need to specialize. I think it is very difficult to just say, well, I'm going to hold forth on everything under the sun or the Supreme Court or something very broad. You know, I feel that in some ways I feel very lucky. I kind of got into this long ago and I have some readers and I do cover a broad range. Of, but even then, but even I specialized quite a bit. I mean, I focused on the federal courts probably more than the state courts. I focused on large law firms more than solo practice. I mean, you kind of have to figure out a lane because there's just too much out there. So I would tell people, especially people who are new, figure out some in some area, maybe even a really narrow issue and just become the expert on hmm. that issue uh, or that 
topic because it's just hard to get traction if you're just going to be a total generalist. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's good advice too. I mean, I think for lawyers in general, I think our, our profession is getting more and more siloed and it doesn't mean you have to decide that before you start law school, that I'm going to be, you know, the greatest FCPA lawyer that only deals with one province in, you know, some country, but you need to sort of over time, figure out what your niche is. And the other cool thing, right, that I've noticed just from doing this podcast, which is sort of my first foray into audience building and content creation is the fact that it's a narrow niche isn't a problem in the age of the internet, right? The yep. niche may be mm-hmm. narrow, yep. but the, the denominator is so large that it's still worth it. Yep. No, ex- absolutely. This is the, what was Chris Anderson's term? This is like the long tail. You don't need right. to write something that's going to please everybody. You just need to write something that will be of interest to a sufficient number of people. Sure. So after Above the Law, you moved into recruiting for a little bit, if I'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken. And I'd love to hear about sort of what made you decide that's where you wanted to go for a period of time and maybe what you learned from that experience. Yeah. So in 2019, I was still at Above the Law, although I had moved into an editor at large role. So I was no longer the managing editor. I stepped down from that role in 2017. And I think I was looking for something different at that point. I think maybe I was a little burned out on writing in 2019. And the other thing to remember about 2019 was it was a very polarized time. It still is a very polarized time, but politically during the Trump years, it was a very polarized time. And writing had also become a little bit stressful. Everything was very fraught. And I thought, you know what, it would be nice to take a break from this. And so I thought about what I might be good at and kind of thinking about those overlapping circles we talked about earlier, Recruiting seemed like a natural thing. Uh, I know a lot about the legal profession. I know a lot of people within it. Uh, I know about different firms. So it seemed like a very good way to use my talents to work as a recruiter, uh, a person who essentially helps legal employers, law firms, companies find talent, a headhunter, really. So I connected with Lateral Link, which was actually Above Law's first advertiser. I had been working with them for years, and so I was very familiar with them and comfortable with them. And I started working uh, with them in May of 2019. And I worked as a recruiter for about two years. And again, I enjoyed it. It was interesting. Um, it's certainly more remunerative than writing. But what I discovered during the end, and this sort of ties in also to COVID, was you know, during the pandemic, including my own scary experience with COVID, I just learned a lot about myself. And I realized that even though I enjoyed recruiting and I had wonderful colleagues, I missed the writing. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, you know what, I would like to return to that. I started Original Jurisdiction, the newsletter slash blog on Substack. I started it in December of 2020 while I was still working as a recruiter. And as the months went on, I found myself enjoying it more and more. Just as when I was in AUSA, I found myself enjoying Underneath the Robes more and more. And so the spring, I decided, you know what, I will start to leave Lateral Link and focus full time on Original Jurisdiction. So as of May 1, that's what I've been doing. Hmm. And the way that it works economically on Substack, you don't have ads. I mean, you can have ads if you want, but it's not really designed to be an ad-funded platform. You just charge your readers a small amount each month. And again, going to what we were saying about small audiences, you don't need a huge audience in, in order to make an okay living. Right now, I charge $5 a month, or if you get an annual subscription, $50 a year, which is the lowest that Substack allows, the $5 a month. I have a lot of content that's free, but I also have some content that's only for paying subscribers. It's sort of the mix of free and premium, this premium model. And so far, so good. I mean, I've been doing it about a month, but I'm hopeful that I'll be able to make a living out of it. 
Sure. And tell us a little bit more about sort of what kind of stories you're trying to cover, what kinds of topics you're trying to write on. Broader than that, even like, how do you spend your days? Yeah. So what I like about the site is I can really kind of write what I like. I would say that it's less news driven than above the law. I don't have to cover every piece of industry news, which frees me up to do things that are more analytical or interview interesting lawyers. For example, I interviewed Kenan Shanmugam, who I think you've had on, who's a great Absolutely. Supreme Court lawyer. I interviewed David Boyes, you know, the famed litigator. I interviewed Viet Din, the uh, chief legal officer at Fox. I've had a lot of interesting interviews, and I can go in, into greater depth in those interviews than just a short news piece. And you know, I'm very lucky. There are a lot of other publications, whether it's Above the Law or Law.com or Law360 or Bloomberg, uh, or the ABA Journal. There are a lot of other publications out there that cover the news. And so I can really kind of sit back and figure out, well, what do I want to write about in a given week? And so I have a mix of stories. I tend to do about three or four. One is a weekly news roundup I always do that I send out on Saturdays called Judicial Notice, which is really my sort of pretty comprehensive attempt to look at what happened in the past week on the legal front, whether it's about the Supreme Court or law firms or legal education or what have you. I do one uh, post that really is supposed to drive reader comment because unlike Above the Law, I do have comments at mm -hmm. original jurisdiction. We had them in the early days of Above the Law and unfortunately they kind of went south and deteriorated in quality. But now that I have a smaller audience of people who subscribe, I'm trying out comments to see if maybe the comments will be you know, of higher quality. And so far they have been. Uh, there haven't mm -hmm. been as many comments as I would like. I'm still trying to build that audience. But the comments that have been posted are really thoughtful and engaging and civil. Uh, so I have this feature weekly called Notice and Comment, where I try to identify a topic and then see if I can get a discussion started about it. And then the third and fourth pieces are usually just something else of interest, whether it's an interview or a profile or maybe my commentary on the news, but more analytical as opposed to breaking news. I do some reporting, absolutely, but I wouldn't call it sort of a hard news Mm -hmm. I feel liberated from covering every last hiccup in the news cycle. And do you think this is just a general move in the media? You know, I've read that the next generation of blogging is this sort of Substack community model. You know, what do you think about that? So in many ways, I think it is. And part of it really just has to do with the economics. Conventional news organizations are having a hard time because advertising rates have dropped. And as print advertising has dried up, it's been a struggle for digital advertising to replace it. Now, some organizations like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times have been very successful with their paywalls, but not all organizations have been successful. And what's happening is many writers and journalists who have followings have found that they can have more freedom and in some cases, even a higher income right on their own on Substack or a similar platform. There are others like Ghost and Review, for instance. Mm. They can make a better living doing that than working for a conventional news organization. The other thing that I like about Substack is really you, I have complete freedom and I'm responsible for everything. One of the things that was kind of challenging about Above Laws, you would have so many writers. And even if I was the managing editor, I didn't have the time to read and edit and approve everything. And sometimes things would go up that I didn't agree with or that I didn't like in terms of quality. But your name is at the top of the masthead. So, of course, you get blamed for it. And that's fine. It comes with a role. But I kind of got tired of being blamed for things that I wasn't really terribly involved mm -hmm. in. And uh, to be honest, I, I think I'm okay at management, but I've never really loved it. And what I like about original jurisdiction is there is no management. And it's all about the writing. There's no 
administrative work. There's no dealing with advertisers. It's just me and the my laptop and the audience, which is really in many ways why this is kind of similar to underneath their robes actually compared to above the law. Except the difference is hopefully now I can make a living out of it as opposed <laughs> to, you know, doing it as a moonlighting lawyer. Right. And I guess, you know, one of the questions that I always have, because my experience as a lawyer and now certainly as an academic is, you know, I get a lot of time to think and I'm expected to write commensurate with the time that I've given to think about the writing. You write on a much shorter sort of deadline and much uh, shorter pieces, more targeted. How do you think about the writing process? And I know you've been blogging now for the better part of two decades. How do you sort of sit down and go from I have an idea to I have words that I'm going to send out to the internet. So it's interesting. I think it varies a lot from person to person. Uh, it really depends on your process. For me, I've actually never really been a huge outliner. The writing is essentially an extension or a form of my thinking. So oftentimes I'll just start with that blank page and just write. And then I can move things around later. I can restructure things. I can cut things but I just need to get it out there. And one of the nice things about writing online, having a blog or a newsletter is you have an expectation of a certain amount of content. It's not like, oh, you write once every few years like George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones and people just <laughs> have to wait. People are expecting you to have something new every week or every day or every hour. And above the law, we would publish something every hour basically during the workday or even more frequently. Uh, so it forces you to just get over your writer's block because you can't sit there agonizing. You need to get something up there. And so it is a, it's a different form of writing. One of the nice things about it, though, is it's preliminary in the sense that, look, you can adjust and correct yourself. And I take pride when I reverse an opinion of mine or change a prediction because it shows that I'm being responsive. Um, like, for example, I was writing a story for original jurisdiction about whether Justice Breyer would retire. And I had information suggesting that, oh, he had hired just two clerks. And so I thought, wow, this seems to me like somebody who's slowing down his hiring, which is what some justices have done in the past ahead of their retirement. Mm -hmm. And then pretty much shortly after I wrote about that, I was informed by various sources, actually, no, your information is wrong. He's hired two other clerks. And that totally changes the calculus because four is a full uh, complement of clerks. So I pretty much quickly wrote up another piece basically saying, you know, confession of error. This is, I, I changed my prediction based on changed information. So that's one thing I think that's different. When you have a law review article or you have a book that's more considered and people have a higher expectation. Whereas here, I think it really is what they say about journalism. It's like the first draft of history, but it's just that, the first. Yeah, it's interesting because I teach writing. And one of the things that I try to instill in my students from day one is your first draft is often for you, right? You're writing as thinking. You're, you, yeah. you can't just think it all in your head and then, oh, I've got it. Now I'm going to sort of be a typist of my brain. Yeah. I mean, there are people who write like that. I am not one of them. It strikes me that you are not one of them. So writing is for thinking first and audience second. And it's okay to sort of like break it down that way. Maybe we can all learn a little bit from blogging. Plus, I, I you know, what's interesting to me is the feedback loop for you is so quick, right? Yeah. I mean, you're putting out multiple stories a week and you can probably see which stories are landing and which stories are not. Yep. Yep, exactly. And you get emails from readers and you get comments from readers. And that's one of the things I most appreciate about it, just how interactive it is. And that was a contrast between this and when I was 
writing briefs, you would write for this audience of three judges and their law clerks, and you wouldn't hear back for a long time, and then you would have the argument, or maybe you wouldn't have the argument, it would just be submitted on the brief, and then you would get a decision, and you didn't necessarily know what had persuaded them. Uh, maybe you could tell from the opinion if they adopted certain arguments of yours, but not really, not always. Whereas here, you really do get real-time, immediate feedback, and people don't hold back. If they think something was great, they'll tell you. If they think something was terrible, they'll tell you. And where do you see original jurisdiction going? Like, obviously, I won't hold you to it, but what's sort of the next step or next stage for this project you just started? You know, honestly, I think I kind of want to keep it very similar to where it is, just with a larger readership, because... Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm not trying to build another about the law. I'm not trying to build another publication or newsroom. I really just like writing. That's what I figured out. And I just want to figure out how to write and make a living. That's really all it is. I'm a little bit swamped right now for various reasons I won't go into. And so I, I haven't had as much time to put into it as I would like to right now in the process of moving, for instance, which is taking up a lot of time. But I really sure. just want to put out really great content and, and build a community. I do need to grow that community and increase the engagement, which is what I'm working on. But really, I don't have any grand plans of world conquest. I, I don't want to grow into this huge publication. I want to be in control of everything. That's why I don't take guest commentaries either, because I basically want to all be responsible for every word. And if there's a mistake, it's my mistake. And uh, I'll, I'll take ownership of it. You know, if I get the chance, maybe I'll do a podcast eventually. And I'd love to hit you up for advice on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I do plan on doing some events. Like I would love to have, whether it's Zoom or Clubhouse or some other forum to have interesting people get together and talk about issues. So I'm planning to do those too. But right now, at this point, I'm just trying to grow the audience. It's still about mm -hmm. emailing people, going on social media, telling them what I'm doing. Because, you know, you'd be surprised. Not everyone is on social media all the time. I've been doing original jurisdiction now for more than six months total and on a paid basis for more than a month. But there's still people I know who still, oh, I didn't know you were doing that. So, you know, this is why I'm, you know, grateful to be here and to be, have the chance to talk to you and why I, you know, really try to take as many interview requests as I can, given just mm -hmm. the hours in the day, because kind of what we were saying earlier, you do have to put yourself out there. You could be producing amazing content, but if you're not disseminating it, then it's like the tree that falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it. So that's another, that's been another challenge. I haven't yet struck the balance between, I think, the launch and the promotion and the writing. I would like mm -hmm. to do more writing, but I think I need to build the audience first. And then I can focus more on the writing, which will, of course, naturally grow the audience, too. When you put out good content and you promote it properly, people come. So that's kind of where I see it going. Yeah, no, it's a real challenge. Sometimes I feel like everyone I know knows exactly what I'm doing. And then I had my first outdoor beer with a friend recently, who's a lawyer, friend of mine from law school, who had no idea I was doing a podcast. <laughs> and, and, and he follows me on every form of social media. Yep. And I said to myself, you know what, just keep putting out good content and, and keep telling people about it. And hopefully yep. something good will happen over time. That's sort of my approach as well. You know, one of the things that I know you write about a lot and have written about for a long time is sort of legal writing that whether it be judicial writing or the, the writing of lawyers. And I guess... My question is, if you either have people who you sort of love reading their legal writing, or if you just see any sort of legal writing trends that you're either excited about or that sort of rub you the wrong way. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of famous judges and jurists whose writing I enjoy. I mean, of course, the late Justice Scalia was amazing. On the current court, really, I think um, Justice Kagan is great. It's a very strong court, though. I think 
Justice sure. Gorsuch, really Justice Kavanaugh, the chief. Really, it's a very strong court in terms of writers, but also among lower court judges. And, you know, I'm loathe to mention too many because then people <laughs> will say, well, why did you mention this person? But there are a sure. lot of great engaging writers. Uh, you know, we're talking about Twitter, like Judge Willett on the Fifth Circuit. He used to be active on Twitter or mm-hmm. Judge Bebas on the Third Circuit or... Mm-hmm. Um, Recently, there was this, you know, as a, there was a little bit of a controversy over Judge Lee of the Ninth Circuit, who wrote this very colorful opinion with a lot of puns and pop culture references. And I would say that beyond this particular opinion, he's an excellent writer. Like if we just look at some of his other opinions, this opinion was a little polarizing, and some people thought it was a bit much. But if you look at his other opinions, he's a very clear, cogent writer. So there are really a lot of talented writers um, out there today. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of a trend, I think that there is a trend of trying to make judicial opinions more accessible. I see it in, for example, introductions to opinions. Some opinions are very old school, just kind of plunging right in and using technical terms and, you know, saying we affirm or we reverse, what have you. But I think it really is good if you can just have a two or three paragraph plain English description of what the case is about. And I'm Mm -hmm. seeing more and more judges doing that. Uh, And because remember, at the end of the day, judges work for the people. And look, they're legal documents. They have to address certain arguments. They have to proceed in a certain fashion. We get that. But it doesn't mean that you can't also make parts of it accessible to people who don't have legal training. So I think that's a good thing. Now, look, we can debate about how far to go in making them accessible. And maybe if there are too many pop culture references, people feel it's disrespectful or something. But I think that in general, it's a good thing when judges endeavor to make themselves understood. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think I come down on the sort of maybe not so many pop culture references, but definitely pro accessibility. So, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot is sort of accessibility versus empathy. It's actually something I've been writing about. So I'm curious because you sort of get to see it all. And I think you're right. I think that's certainly the tension that we're trying to walk through in today's judicial writing, to be sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I'm glad that people are aware of it. And it's something that people are self-aware of and they think about it consciously when they write. Sure. And it requires us all to think about who is our audience, which is always the key question to writing. And I think there was a period where the audience for a judicial opinion was maybe a little bit less clear. And I think that's a good change overall. Before I let you go, one thing I always like to ask uh, people about, particularly men, is about family life. And I know you have a child and have a husband. And I'm curious what you've learned over the last few years. Again, anybody who listens to the podcast knows I hate the phrase work-life balance, but how you find meaning in work and life. You know, I have to say it is really difficult. Stephen Karen Vladek have a great podcast called In Loco Parents, where they interview lawyers about parenting issues. And I was on it a little while ago. And I think what I like about their podcast is it really does capture just the challenge. It's, it's hard. And you can have great help. I mean, we have a wonderful nanny. We have support from all four grandparents who live near us. But it's still really tough to find a way to balance you know, taking care of your child and making sure you're engaged and attentive as a parent and getting through all your work. Mm -hmm. Not easy. But look, I agree with, you know, Justice Sotomayor and others who said, look, like, don't expect to quote unquote, have it all. Really, who does? Like, it's very difficult. I mean, look, I consider myself very blessed. And I think that I'm very glad and grateful to have a fulfilling family life and a fulfilling career. So to the extent that you can have it all, maybe I do feel I do. But if have it all is meant to have and convey some kind of perfection in all spheres of life, like nobody has it all. Like, you know, who knows what's going on behind the scenes and 
in somebody's life. I mean, look, I'm still amazed by some people like take Justice Barrett. I don't know how you have, you know, a family of whatever, eight kids or something and, you know, be a Supreme Court justice and turn out as good work product as she does. Like, I just, you know, I don't know how you do that. Uh, I have one and I'm already struggling. So, you know, it, it, it's definitely not easy, I guess, is, is my takeaway three and a half years into the parenting thing. Totally. I can absolutely commiserate with the fact that it's not easy and it's a challenge and you just have to find the rewarding pieces where you can and keep your values close to home. And I think it was, it may have been Justice Ginsburg, I think I've said it on the podcast before, who said, you can have it all, just you can't have it all at the same time. Think of it in sort of a longer time horizon. Be present in that moment when you're working and be present in that moment when you're with your kid. But that's way easier said than done and something that I know I'm personally working on as well. Yeah, that's a really good quote by Justice Ginsburg because there are times when your work is going to ramp up or there are times when you're going to be needed more by your family. And, you know, that's just how it is. You can't give a consistent level of effort all the time on all fronts. So I try not to beat myself up about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I hope the quote is accurate since I've now said it to the world. But <laughs> I, I like the advice regardless. David, I'd like to end these conversations by asking for sort of one piece of advice for either people just graduating from law school or people just starting law school or sort of newer lawyers in our profession, something you've learned from your career and your path that you would want to convey to them? Yeah, I guess what I would say, and I know it's you know perhaps cliched, but really, you know, do what you love. Follow, follow your heart on these things. And I think it's easier said than done because in the legal profession, we're very conscious of hierarchies of prestige. This is why we all obsess over rankings of law schools and law firms. And we all want to jump through the hoops and grab the brass rings. But I've never been happier than you know I am as a writer, even though a lot of people would say, wow, like you walked away from this legal career and you're at this prestigious firm or you had this great job as a federal prosecutor and now you're this blogger. Like what was up with that? But you know, you have to kind of figure out what makes you happy and whether or not it's prestigious or whether or not it's going to impress people at a a cocktail party. And again, I know that's easier said than done. And you have to also be practical. People have families to support. People have mortgages to pay. People have law school loans to repay. So I totally understand that. But within the constraints of your life and practical considerations, really try to find what gives you fulfillment and, and meaning in this life. Because uh, it really, as I learned, you know, I was in the hospital for three weeks last year with COVID, including mm -hmm. almost a week on a ventilator. Like they say, like life is too short. So really try to find what you need. That's fantastic. Well, David, I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on the podcast. Remind everybody where they can find you uh, if they're interested in original jurisdiction or your other sort of writing. Yep. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Original jurisdiction is davidlatt.substack.com. I'm on Twitter, just backslash David Latt. Facebook, LinkedIn, davidlatt.com is my personal website. I'm very easy to find. Apologies, I'm sometimes delinquent on email. I was actually just tweeting about this, about <laughs> you know, delinquency. So apologies if anyone reaches out to me and I take a while to get back to you, but uh, I'm always happy to hear from people. Again, that was legal commentator David Latt, founder of Above the Law, who's currently writing for his new newsletter, Original Jurisdiction. I want to thank David for taking the time to join me on the podcast and for being so open about his path and the importance of not being afraid to promote yourself in the profession. If you've enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to future episodes at howilawyer.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I can be reached at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again to David. Thanks for listening and have a great week.